Welcome to My Friends in the North with PR and management consultant Sarah Waddington as she interviews some of the leading lights in the north of England about their work, the economy, communications and what makes them tick. Hello and welcome to My Friends in the North. And today offers a particularly interesting show for me as a media relations graduate, even if my time at uni was a long time ago. I'd like to welcome Helen Dalby, Editor-in-Chief for Reach PLC in the Northeast, to the show. Thanks for joining me, Helen. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm fascinated about all of this. I'm so glad you're on the show. Um, so let's start off by talking about your role. Um, it's fantastic first off, to see a female leader succeeding in what is predominantly a male industry. So could you tell us a little bit about your career to date? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in, in journalism now for 17 years. Um, I started as a business reporter at Cobweb Information in Gateshead. And I moved from there to what was then Trinity Mirror, of course, is now Reach in 2007. Mm. Um, and my very first job there was to launch Chronicle Live as a standalone website. It was uh, it was launched in 2007 as a standalone website, which it, it grew out of the portal that was IC Newcastle, which many people might remember. Um, 2007 was its first year as a, as a standalone website. And, and since then, um, Chronicle Live has grown to be the biggest regional news website in the Northeast. It's the fourth biggest in England. And I was lucky enough to become Chronicle Live's digital editor in 2015, uh, before becoming senior editor for Reach in the Northeast in 2018 and then Editor-in-Chief last November. And in my new role, I'm responsible for leading our digital brands in Yorkshire and Humber, as well as continuing to uh, oversee our two newsrooms and our portfolio in the Northeast. And I have to say, kind of in that time, I've definitely noticed a shift in how male-dominated the industry has traditionally been. It's brilliant to see some incredible female editors and journalists coming through now. I think Jan Williams at the Manchester Evening News is an outstanding... She's superb, right? She's superb. She's been a very much a highlight of this year, especially with her political journalism, you know, following around what's been happening with Boris Johnson and things. But she she is a very, very smart lady, isn't she? I mean, you can just see it in everything she does. She's fantastic. And I think as well, you know, The Mirror is now edited by Alison Phillips. Uh, the Liverpool Echo is edited by Maria Breslin. So I think things are changing. And I think for me, the moment that I realised things were changing was was when I opened the Northeast Business Awards Grand Final in 2018. It was my first really big speech, and I was waiting backstage to go on, a bit nervous as you are. Um, and Lucy Winskill, who was our keynote speaker that year, uh, was backstage with me, and she said to me, "How nice to have two women opening this event." And that really gave me the confidence I needed to just go out there and, and nail the speech. And that actually turned out it was the first time in the 20-year history of the Business Awards that it had been opened uh, by women, the first but not the last. And that's uh, that amazing. Really and one thing I would pull you up on there is that you said you were lucky to get one of your jobs. And that's not about luck. It's about also skill and ability there. So like, I think that's something that us, us women can sometimes do. We talk about luck, but actually it's also about hard graft and, and ability too. Tell me what you see as the key function and purpose of journalism. Okay, so I think our fundamental purpose as journalists is to inform and to find out and report without fear or favour uh, on everything that's happening in our local communities that, that affects the lives and the businesses of the people who live and work there. I think it, we also have an important job to do to champion and celebrate the, the strengths and the triumphs and, and all of the endeavours of those local communities and also to hold those who are in authority and who govern us and spend public money to scrutiny and to account. 
And I think we have, you know, we have an important job to do for the principle of open justice and an open and, and fair and transparent society as well to ensure things like the outcome of courts and, and council meetings and other public hearings are recorded uh, and are published. And then we provide a voice for people to, to challenge unfairness and inequality uh, and to give them a platform so that they can be heard. In a, a situation like a global pandemic, um, our job is, is also to report clearly, calmly, um, responsibly and also accurately amid a, what can seem, it can seem like a sea of constantly changing noise and information, can't it, sometimes? Um, but there's a core uh, message of, of vital things that people in local areas need to know uh, about what the latest situation is, what the latest rules are, and the media has a really important role to play in, in reporting those things. Completely agree. You gave me goosebumps describing the purpose of journalism there. I think people, A, underestimate how important local journalism is and, and those different functions and perhaps don't appreciate the breadth of the role. Um, but I have to say, during the pandemic, I've really seen the Chronicle and Journal come into their own in terms of helping make sense of that huge amount of noise that's coming through and actually you could argue confusing government messaging you know like some of it has been good a lot of it from a professional communicator's point of view hasn't been so good and you can see that with the way that the transition has been and people have behavior has changed or not accordingly which brings me on to we talked about government messaging so this is a app question the Reuters institute for the study of journalism published the results of a study in june 2020 and that said that trust in the news had fallen to 28 percent now obviously that's quite a scary figure why do you think that is the report's really interesting i think it's important to delve deeper into the figures to sort of understand where the local media publishers fit in. So if you look at, um, at coverage of COVID, for instance, the, the, the report showed that trust in media coverage of the pandemic was relatively high in all the countries it looked at, behind doctors and health organisations, but at more than twice the level of social networks, um, video platforms, messaging services, etc., and significantly higher than for individual politicians. And I think that's a really interesting point. I think we've definitely seen in recent years some politicians on both sides of the Atlantic uh, attempting to undermine the media. And Mm. I I really feel that that is a damaging and and short-sighted thing to do because I think this is key in terms of covering a global pandemic, that the media have a really critical role to play in getting vital instructions and information to the widest possible audience as fast as possible. It was refreshing, right, to see for the first time this past week with Biden's election as president-elect in the US that Trump-favoured media are actually starting to call out some of the untruths that he was then tweeting and, and saying in interviews. That was, I felt that there was a big change last week that will hopefully help the media landscape. Absolutely. And I was also really encouraged to see Twitter taking oh, yeah. decisive uh, action in terms of labelling labeling tweets. Which, which could mislead people. And, and I think that was a really, really important step forward and really welcomed it. I think the other thing that in terms of the, the Reuters report that's interesting with regard to regional and local news outlets is that they generally fare well in terms of trust. So in the Reuters report in the UK, local newspapers are trusted by 55%. So that was fourth in the, the Reuters list and it was much higher than, than for commercial media. And I think that that's because we remain really deeply connected to our local communities. And for me, that's that's the key point, I think. Um, it's that deep local connection. So let's take that a little bit further. And I know you at REACH have done a huge amount of work on hyperlocal, but is hyperlocal, hyperlocal, easy for me to say, the solution, is this the way to increase trust in journalism, to go even further, deeper into the communities? 
Absolutely, I think so. And I think regional newsrooms do do tend to try to take a hyperlocal approach. Certainly those that I work with strive to. We built our websites around the concept of tags. So all content is grouped by tag and we have these set up at a very hyperlocal level so that it's really easy to find and read everything that we've done on, say, Walls End or Rothbury. And, and that makes it important in terms of how we categorise the content so that people can see how much news and information there is about the, the, the local communities that we, we report on. Over the last couple of years, we've, we've brought in community reporters to, to really get into underreported and underrepresented communities at a hyperlocal level. And that's unearthed some fantastic stories. So at the start of the pandemic, in the first national lockdown, um, the community reporters at Chronicle Live ran a, ran a rolling live blog of all of the random acts of kindness and goodwill that were happening at a hyperlocal level around the northeast. And this being the northeast, there was a lot of that. It was everything from people collecting, offering to collect shopping or medicine to people who were making their own PPE. Um, it was brilliant. It really restored your faith in, in humanity reading it. And we did something very similar recently after MPs voted not to extend free school meals into the October half term. Again, we ran a role in live blog to publicise every single business. That was insane. Yeah, it was amazing. It was lovely to see as well, actually. And I think it was something that people really needed at that point in time. They really did. And also, we felt that we had a really vital role to play to actually publicise these businesses. They were stepping forward and stepping up to feed hungry kids. And so we felt that what we could do is give them publicity. Um, So we did that and and we reverse published all of those listings into print and showed them on the front page as well, which was an important kind of part of the circle too massive question for you and we could probably talk a whole 20 minutes on it and more um so we'll have to do this fairly succinctly how big an issue is misinformation for new rooms newsrooms today so obviously you know you you have a lot of control over what you can publish but obviously you've got a big job as well in terms of verifying the information that you get no absolutely and the central pillar of our brand values uh in the northeast it reaches that we're trustworthy so that, that means things like we have robust processes for content editing and publishing. We, we don't rush. We fact check. Um, we train reporters in online verification of things like images and videos, as well as training them in media law. Of course, we're not perfect, but we do take our responsibility to publish accurate information very seriously. But the, the proliferation of fake news, um, so by that I mean both the existence online of misinformation, but also the ease of publishing to, say, a blog site that's not accountable to an industry code of practice or ethics, it has caused challenges for newsrooms. And I think one of the challenges actually is that it's now become sort of social media shorthand for a story that you simply don't like. Yeah, this is terrible, right? It's just a very easy way of just other people just, well, Trump being the the most powerful man in the world to actually just do this to to something he doesn't like, it calls it fake news. And of course that term sticks. Yeah, it does. And I think, I mean, to give you a real kind of local example of that, um, we, we published a report about a council planning committee, which decided to grant the permission for the YI big wheel development on the quayside. So that's a statement of fact. It's a matter of record of a meeting. It's absolutely bread and butter local journalism that we would attend that meeting and report on it. There are people who are sceptical about the YI ever coming to fruition. And so we do find that on our social media channels or through email, myself as editor, we can get accusations of, of that being fake news just because people don't actually think it'll ever happen. I think it's a really damaging phrase. And I think it's one that should be reserved for actual misleading misinformation. It's a little bit like clickbait, which I sort of feel like don't get me started on clickbait. But I do think <laughs> it, 
it's another really damaging phrase that's often mm. misused and misunderstood. And for me, clickbait is not compelling content with an eye-catching headline that lots of people want to read. That's what newspapers have, have tried to do since time immemorial. For me, clickbait is content that's misleadingly labelled or it's something that promises much and doesn't deliver. Yeah, I know that it's also done to either spread propaganda or drive traffic because you're selling advertising space, which is you know has a slightly different purpose there. We've seen a move to the government leaking plans to individual national newspapers in advance of publicly publishing policy. I don't even know where to start with this, but let's go with how does this affect regional titles? Because obviously, I mean, it's a big problem for the nationals, big problem for broadcasts. Um, how does that affect titles like yours? I don't believe that vital public health information should should sit behind an embargo or be released exclusively to a chosen title. And I think especially so if that title's content is behind a paywall. I think vital policy, vital public health information affecting the lives of millions of people should be communicated clearly and as quickly and widely as it's practical to do so. And I think that the media across every platform, national, local, print, online, broadcast, have all got a role to play there. And it was interesting when the when the Prime Minister briefed the nation on the latest lockdown um, recently on Saturday night, there was some criticism on, on Twitter in particular of journalists who posted what his announcement was, was likely to say before he said it. But that's a journalist's job to find out information important to the public and to report it. And I think in the end, as, as well, long as it's facts, though, there's an awful lot of journalists interviewing journalists and then second guessing what's going to be done. And I think that's part of the problem in terms of if 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 you're reporting fact, fine. If it's speculation, I don't want to hear it. No, you're right. It absolutely needs to be to be verified, stood up as fact. Um, I think it's vitally important that the government engages with local media with these announcements and with the impact that they're going to have on the local communities. With an understanding of obviously those nuances, because no region is the same. And even in the northeast, the north-northeast to south-northeast is incredibly different, right? Completely different. And I think, you know, that, that deep connection that I talked about earlier that we have with those local communities means that we can actually represent their concerns with, with a level of empathy and knowledge and understanding of the challenges that those communities face. It has been, I have to say, it has been encouraging to see a move towards including regional journalists, the Downing Street briefings. So our political editor, John Walker, has appeared on um, on the Downing Street briefing and, and been given the opportunity to ask questions. Jen Williams, we talked about earlier, has yeah. done a brilliant job of that as well. It's just not yet consistent and it needs to happen as a matter of course, in my view. No, I agree. Reach, let's talk about Reach a bit more. You've long championed a digital first approach and it's been a, a, a long time now particularly when publishers have been struggling to find a sustainable way to monetize news media. Um, you've successfully managed to keep four strong regional papers in print, which is, is amazing, particularly for a small region like the Northeast. Where does the future lie, do you think? I think the future lies in, in continuing to be audience focused and making sure that whatever the platform that we're giving readers what we know that they want um, and and we're retaining that connection. I know I keep talking about the connection to local communities, but I think it's because I just believe so fundamentally that that's the most important part of what we do. Online, we're, we're still seeing great audiences and, and, and superb growth. Uh, Chronicle Live has, has broken its monthly page views record this year. Teesside Live has two twice, actually. And in Yorkshire, Yorkshire Live's more than doubled its audience since March when it launched. But what's encouraging is that newspaper sales have also been strong through the pandemic. And we've seen a really big uptick in people subscribing to home delivery, which to me shows that we're providing a vital service that people are reaching out. 
Well, particularly when people are isolated, right? This is when people start to realise the important role of regional journalism and what you're actually doing because they don't no longer have the contact that you might get in the supermarket when you're going up to pick that. But you're still getting the news that you need from your community and the information that you need to stay safe. Absolutely. And it's a connection. It's a connection to what's happening locally. And if you can't, you know, you're not confident going out to shops that you've lost that daily part of your routine, you still want to retain the daily part of your routine that keeps you connected and informed. And so we've definitely seen a a, a noticeable uptick in that. You know, I'm just really proud of the strength of all of our brands, both print and and digital. And I often say this when I do, I was talking about the Business Awards speech earlier on, I often say this, but the journal has been banging the drum now um, as a voice of this region since 1832. And we're incredibly proud of, the, of, of that legacy. As you should be. As you should be. I can't think of the Northeast without it, to be honest. How important is the online user experience to you in your role as audience and content director for Reach? Again, I think vitally important. We, we, we have to serve advertising to continue to provide an entirely free online news service. So it's always a balancing act. But a good online user experience it makes it easy and enjoyable to consume our content um, but it also keeps loyal readers coming back and we've been we've been really proactive as an organization at embracing third-party platforms uh, like Facebook instant articles Google accelerated mobile pages we're also working on constantly working on on improving the apps and the thing about that is that readers can personalize the news that they see on on our app so I mentioned our tags our hyperlocal tags earlier it's possible to personalise those on the Chronicle Live or Teesside Live app so that you see the content that's most of interest to you and to where you live. So that might be Newcastle United, it might be Benton, uh, it might be traffic and travel. And that personalised user experience, again, breeds loyalty and, and frequency of use. Brilliant. As we move to the end, because it's been a fascinating chat, and to the end, I could talk to you all day, but I'm going to ask you a couple of personal questions now, if that's all right, if we draw to the end of the podcast. I know that you're a very proud Geordie, and your grandfather worked in shipbuilding at Swan Hunter. How has the region changed since then? What would you have thought about your line of work and this almost wholesale change in industries to digital? Oh, Grandpa was, he was incredibly proud of his job. He was quality control manager at Swan's um, for many years, and he always used to say that there wasn't a ship left the time that didn't have his stamp of approval on it and um, he was absolutely forensic with detail as well so I believe him I've inherited that trait from him to an extent he was 91 when he died so he, he wasn't okay with technology he used to refer to my phone as that thing um, <laughs> my line of work it does tend to ring and buzz and beep all the time and um, I remember once I astounded him with, with that thing because I was able to find archive pictures of him at the shipyard in the 50s online he genuinely thought my phone was magic that day that there was this photograph and there was a big ceremony and he was there and he just couldn't believe that this this photo existed on on the internet. He was a he was a really big supporter of, of my career. He was very proud when I became senior editor, although he sadly died just before I became editor in chief. But he, he taught me a lot um, through his attitude to to his work. So you know, put the graft in, work hard, look after your team, and be diligent and precise as well. That's that forensic detail um, that he had as quality control manager. But above all, he was very, very proud of what he did. And I think that's really important too. And I think kind of digital revolutions and transformations aside, I don't actually think the Northeast has changed in the pride that our people have in our area. And I think that Granda would have been enormously proud that we relaunched the Passionate People, Passionate Places campaign in January. Um, it sort of stands for everything he believed in about his job um, and our region. And he used to rave as well about the TV ad, which I'm sure you'll remember of the horses on, on Bamber Beach. Combined two of his favourite things, the Northumberland 
coast and horses. But I think a sense of pride in everything that he did was was the word that I most associate with Granda is 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 proud. And I do think that this is a very proud region. And I think that we're we've got a lot to be proud of as well, which is why I think that my my role now in 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 some small part is to shout about how brilliant it is here. No, I absolutely agree. And that generation were just of their own ilk, weren't they? I'm very similar story with my with my nana, to be honest. And uh, I would have used the same qualities about her. And I'm I'm pretty confident that that's where it comes through in me. And certainly that that graft is is very bit important. You know, you you do you do the hard work, and actually it will pay off for you. Your chair of the Sunshine Fund, which is a charity close to both our hearts. I used to be a trustee for it, and I was for four years. And this funds equipment for children with disabilities. Tell us a little bit about its works, so we can give it a bit of a plug. <laughs> Thank you. That's brilliant. No, the, Sun- the Sunshine Fund is a small charity, but it's, it's got an absolutely gigantic heart. So the, the, the equipment it funds for, for local children with a huge range of, of disabilities and conditions, it's, it's absolutely life-changing, um, both for the children themselves, but also for their families and and so we all of us involved with the Sunshine Fund believe that what we do makes a huge difference to the families who face the sort of challenges that many of us could just never imagine dealing with on a day-to-day basis. The, the charity started all sort of started when, when King George V opened the Pine Bridge in 1928 and he gave £15, which was a lot of money at that point, uh, he gave £15 to the, the Evening Chronicle, the then Evening Chronicle, the disadvantaged children to go to the coast for a day out. So that was the that was the original concept. The fund was revived as a charity in 1994 by our former editor, my former boss and, and mentor, Neil Benson. And since then, it's funded over two million pounds with the specialist equipment, more than 1500 individual children and families. But it's also provided a lot of equipment to schools and other organisations in the northeast. It's an absolutely brilliant organisation and a brilliant team to be part of as well so thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it because this is a really vital time of year for our fundraising it's obviously been a difficult year for the charity as it has for for all of us so it would be brilliant if your listeners could could have a look and the website is www.thesunshinefund.org and you can find out there how you can help so thank you very much we'll be very grateful no problem and i will share that url in the show notes so that people once they click through can then very quickly locate the the web page We've actually gone over time, but it's been fascinating. But I'm still going to ask you this last question because it's one I ask everybody and I think it's so important. We've talked about a lot of the big issues faced by journalism today. You've um, provided a very relaxed, really informative interview, but I know how highly stressful your job is. What's your chosen way to switch off, relax and manage your mental health? So this is actually something I'm not very good at. Um, But I mean, there's a few sort of strategies that I've adopted this year. I I really love live entertainment. And that's obviously something that's not been possible right now. You're a big gig goer, right? I am a big gig goer, a rock chick. Um, I'd love nothing more than a rock concert, especially if it's Bruce Springsteen, who I'm obsessed with. (laughs) Um, I've seen him live four times now. So I was very excited when the new album came out a few weeks ago, because that was the hope that there may be a tour in the offering. I really like stand-up comedy as well. I think we're, we're really blessed in this region for, for brilliant venues for, for both comedy and music. So we're very lucky to, to have that and, you know, look forward to, to that return and in future. I've been trying to walk during the pandemic. So during lockdown, it was a, what used to be before all of this used to be a fairly chaotic school run in the car every morning before driving to work is now a walk. And that's really helping me both physically and mentally. Um, I've got sort of two... 30 35 minute round trips during the course of the day 
and speed walking in the fresh air is really good for, for clearing your head, just giving you a little bit of a breather away from the screen just to get your thoughts straight. And I found actually since the schools went back that that's really helped me. Great. Thank you. Helen, that's been a great interview. I've enjoyed it so much. And I really appreciate you talking to us about your career and and so much more. Because I know some of those are quite difficult subjects. And, you know, we've only been able to give a little bit of time to each one. So thank you for giving us a great answer. You can stay up to date with Helen by following at Helen Dalby on Twitter. And that's us done for today. But if you or a client would like to be involved with the podcast, please do drop me a line at sarah at astute.work. In the meantime, stay safe and see you next time. Thank you for listening to My Friends in the North with Sarah Waddington. You can find Sarah on Twitter at Mrs. underscore Wads or get involved with the podcast by emailing sarah at astute.work. See you next time. Mm-hmm.